Welcome to Kol Isha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kol Isha. So this week, I want to cover a topic that's become very relevant in recent days. And I was kind of trying to avoid talking about coronavirus much. Um, but I did want to address it in a sort of indirect way, because what we've been seeing is that throughout this pandemic, um, there's been a lot of information, but also a big lack of information because coronavirus is so new. And so what's been happening is as this uh, pandemic is unfolding, we're seeing more and more research being done. But at the same time, there's still not enough research. And what seems to be happening because of the lack of research, the lack of understanding of coronavirus, um, people are starting to maybe look for uh, research sources that are not the most reliable. Um, I think this might be giving way to certain conspiracy theories popping up. Um, and so I wanted to discuss what makes research valuable, what kind of research is reliable, uh, where we get our data from, how medical research is done, and then how it's then implemented into practice. And so to do that, I invited a guest um, that has a ton of experience in this area. Her name is Tamima Oretz. She is a registered nurse. She graduated from Adelphi uh, with her bachelor's, and she's been working as a pediatric hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplant nurse. And she lives and works in Atlanta, Georgia. She's one of the first 50 nurses to receive the nationally recognized evidence-based practice certification from the Fold Institute in Ohio. And currently, she works as evidence-based practice coordinator uh, in her hometown of Atlanta. She also presents nationally about ways to implement the best evidence into current nursing practice. So she has a wealth of experience in research. Welcome to Mima. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I also do want to say that Tamima and I go way back and we went to nursing school together and I probably would not have graduated if she hadn't taught me chemistry from scratch. So thank you, Tamima. (laughs) So Tamima, welcome to Colisha. And can you just give our listeners a little background about yourself, um, where you're from, what made you go into nursing, what made you go into this specific branch of nursing? What can you share with us? Sure. So um, I grew up in San Diego, California. Um, and I went into nursing because I was looking for a field that really married science with helping people. Um, and it seemed like a good match for being able to use a, a very strong science background, but in a way that was directly with patient care. I didn't want to end up in a science lab for the rest of my life. So after I became a nurse, the part of nursing that I just fell in love with was the advocacy for my patients. Um, I loved the fact that I could see that they were in distress, see that there was a problem, and I had tools to really help them um, and to advocate for them to get the best care and help them in any way I can. Being in the pediatric hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplant field, um, obviously you can't save every patient, but I can give them the best experience possible, and, and I can them the most comfort that I could give them, um, besides for the money that we do save, thank God. So um, part of that advocacy led me to really just love and be very passionate about evidence-based care. Um, Because if my patients that I'm taking care of 
get the, you know, if I make sure that they get the best care, I want to make sure that in our policies, in our practice, all patients get the best care, regardless of which nurse they have or which doctors are taking care of them. Um, there's really a lot of evidence out there to explain what we should be doing at the bedside and what has produced the best outcomes for our patients. Um, and I want to make sure that that gets translated into practice. It doesn't just stay there in the science lab or research facilities or in the um, res- or in the manuscripts, but is actually translated into actual practice. So what would you say your role is in terms of implementing the research into actual practice? How do you go about that in your role as a research nurse? So... Um, so I'm an evidence-based practice nurse. There's a difference between research and evidence-based practice. Um, research are the nurses that are involved in the actual studies. Evidence-based practice is a little bit different. So when we have a question in our practice, um, what should we be doing? How often should we be changing these lines? Uh, what kind of medication should we be giving? Should we be giving medication? Or we have this practice. Is this a valid practice? That question comes to me. Um, And then I channel it into a PICO question, which is a searchable question. I look through uh, different databases that have scientific literature from peer-reviewed publications. Um, And I look through all of the different articles that I can find. I synthesize them. I appraise them. I summarize them. And then I pull out the recommendations from them. So part of appraising is saying whether the article is current or is was done rigorously enough to give us the evidence that we're looking for. And then part of it is saying, does this really apply to the population that we're currently servicing? Um, would this work for our patient population? So it's a mixture of looking at the evidence. It's also based off of my clinical expertise, and it's also based off of my knowledge of patient and family preferences and values. And sometimes I'll ask the patients and families, like, what will work for you? You know, it's the research is kind of in a controlled environment. So it's great that um, we see it because it's very rigorous. It lets us know that taking away other outside factors, this is what we would find. But then in the real world, if we want to know, will this actually work in um, our population? It needs to be coupled with that experience and has to have the input of the patients and families. Um, So using those three factors, I pull together recommendations. um, And then I give those recommendations to stakeholders who could be um, bedside nurses who are looking to change policy. It could be management who's looking to change our practice um, or support our current practice. Um, It could be directors. It could be a lot of allied health. We have a lot of non, you know, non-nursing personnel who also have questions that affect nurses. Um, So it's really all different kinds of questions and all different kinds of areas. But a lot of it is are we doing the right thing for our patients? Are we doing it consistently? Are we falling within best practice? Um, And if not, what should we be doing? So it sounds like you do a lot of review of the available literature and the available data based on research studies that have already been done. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. I've read a very good share of articles myself. Um, And a lot of it is just, is reading them and appraising them and, um, and really just finding out how they can be implemented and should they be implemented into practice. Okay, so based on on the work that you've been doing, what have you learned and what can you share about how research is done? Or to take it a step further, what research is valuable? Because it sounds like you do a lot of analysis on the available research, 
But then how do you know if a study is really useful or if a study is really accurate or, you know, if the authors are truthful or maybe they have some sort of vested interest, right? It sounds like you have to pull apart which studies and which data are good, valuable, useful studies. So how do you go about doing that? And how do you know when a study is really a good study, a reliable study, or maybe it's just something that was published that maybe isn't a reliable study? So that's a great question. I mean, this is something that is super important. It's, you know, it starts even with our children. We say to them, not everything you read online is accurate. Um, you know, not everything that you hear is is truly evidence-based. Um, so I think that we're starting off with what is research. So research is taking a controlled environment and testing something to see its effects um, or just watching something to see its effects. Then non-research is when you take that same example, but you put it into the real world to see, okay, in the real world, how does it translate when we don't try to, you know, take out anything that might affect our results? So what we are looking for in research is that it's reliable and that it's um, broadened and can be used in a lot of different uh, environments. So for starters, the first thing is where was this published? Was it published in a peer review publication? Is it a scientific journal? Were there other experts in the field looking and reviewing this? Or was this something that was very easily published by whoever decided to write it and put it in? Um, you can look up which journals are peer reviewed. You can look up their impact factor, um, you know, how much uh, different physicians and nurses are relying on the journals. And then it's also looking at the actual uh, methodology of the study. So, did the, you know, what kind of patient population were they looking at? What was the setting of the patient population? What was their sample size? Did they ha look at five patients? Did they look at 200 patients? Um, what kind of patients were these? Were they pediatric? Were they adults? Uh, the setting helps you because if it was in a rural hospital, you know, in Nebraska, they're going to see a different patient population than if it took place in an um, inner city hospital in New York. Um, so when you're looking at all of these different factors, all these help you paint a picture of, well, if I want to see what's going to work in my practice, it's going to have to be that the patients that they look at um, was similar enough to what I'm going to be looking at. If I'm in a huge hospital and they looked at 10 patients, um, that doesn't translate so well into my own practice. Then it's also their rigor. You know, how carefully did they look at things? How carefully did they try to take out anything that might affect their results? Um, so I can say that, for example, um, IV lines more often infiltrate when they're in the left arm, right? They go bad when they're in the left arm more than the right arm. Okay, well, I have a chance that it's 50-50. You know, if I decide it's either going to be the left arm or it's going to be the right arm. But um, if they looked at enough patients that they found statistical significance, that means it happened in the left arm enough times that I could say this was not due to chance. This was due to the fact that there is something about the left arm that um, affects this guy B. And how did I eliminate it? Was, was I using the same dressings in every single arm? You know, I don't want to have other outside factors that I could say, well, really, it's just because in half the patients you're using this kind of dressing and in half the patients you're using that kind of dressing. So really, it has nothing to do with which arm it was in. Um, so it's really looking at all those different factors. 
I think it's very easy for people to say, oh, there was a study done or um, I looked or the literature, scientific literature supports, you know, I'm always a little bit like wary when people say that because there's so much literature out there. Um, And I want to see that literature. I want to see what were the limitations we were looking at. um, For example, we were looking at one uh, article that was specific to our bone marrow transplant population and the study had taken place outside of the United States. So in the study, it mentioned that they open up the windows in their hospital. Well, when I'm looking at infection control in the bone marrow transplant unit, in the United States hospitals, we don't open up any windows. That's going to have a huge impact in translating their results into our practice. Um, That's going to be a limitation of that article. So it could be a very rigorous article. It just wouldn't translate well into our Um, environment where we don't currently do that. So there's a lot of different factors. Again, if you see a article and they did have five patients, well, was five patients enough to really draw the conclusions that they're drawing? Or were five patients really just kind of giving you a sample? How were those five patients selected? Was it random? Were they chosen? That creates a bias. Um, So there's a lot of different factors that might limit the way that you look at uh, research. But a lot of research that's done published in peer review journals um, have been looked at by the, and have been asked these questions and have been held up to show that they were rigorously done in their methodology um, and that their outcomes really represent what they were trying to do. Uh, Non-research is real life experience. So this is quality improvement projects. This is um, expert opinion. And when we talk about COVID-19, a lot of what we're looking at is non-research or is um, expert opinion. So it's people that have dedicated their lives to looking at how viruses work, what is the um, epidemiology of the virus, different ways that pandemics have come in the past, and what they know scientifically about the viruses. And they're using their expert opinion to say, well, in this situation where we don't have evidence to base it on, these are the recommendations that we make. Um, it takes years to do research. So when you have a pandemic that came out nine weeks ago, more likely you're looking at uh, expert opinion or just tracking trends, um, their perspectives or opinions. And you're not looking at that scientific rigor that would tell us, oh, for sure, this is a conclusion that we can draw. And so would that explain why things have changed from the beginning of the COVID pandemic until now, recommendations have changed and, you know, certain medical practices have changed. I know a lot of people are very doubtful about that. It tends to instill like a lack of trust when people see that things are rapidly changing and evolving. It it makes people think that maybe the medical community doesn't necessarily know what they're doing in this case. And I think that that's exactly what it is. It's that um, we don't have scientific literature on COVID-19 specifically. We have experts who, again, have dedicated their lives to looking at viruses and how to treat them and pandemics, Um, but they're still in a unique situation where now you have a different virus. Uh, They can explain to you how most viruses work. They can try to take precautions that they think will help based off of their prior experience, Um, but it's gonna change based off of their findings. It's almost like research in the making right now. Right now they are currently seeing, all right, how does this work? And when we try this, what happens? Oh, that didn't work. When we try this, what happens? Um, And everything is 
done with a very ethical consideration of we want to help the masses. Um, everything's done with the perspective of we better be safe than sorry. Um, but then there's also other factors that come into recommendations as well. Um, I know that I've seen a lot of different videos, articles about, you know, one person who has a cure and feels that this is what we really should be doing and the government's holding back by not administering this treatment. But overall, you know, these are experts who really have looked at this for years and years and years. And the recommendations that they're making might be reserved or, you know, erring on the side of safety or precaution. It might have other motives as well, but they really are the ones that are making this based off of their knowledge of how pandemics and viruses work. So when you alluded to certain treatments that people were were saying were being denied and stuff like that, you know, I've seen some of that too. And, and some of that came up with the drug hydroxychloroquine. And the reason I mentioned this is because like you said, uh, research has to be done very rigorously on lots of people over a lot of time in order to really draw conclusions in most cases. Um, but basically, you know, when, when a regular person reads an article in the news, what they'll see is something like, oh, there was a study done in a hospital in France where hydroxychloroquine showed really promising results. And so we should really consider using this drug. Um, and this newspaper article makes it sound like it's a great promising drug that we should all start implementing right now. Then someone like you or someone with some medical experience who has experience looking at research might say, hey, let's look at the original study. Well, maybe there was only 20 people involved. Maybe it wasn't the most randomized group, et cetera, et cetera. But a person who's not medically trained or not research trained doesn't know how to read a research study. So what would be your recommendation for someone who's, you know, reading the news, reading an article that's been linked on Facebook or, you know, any such platform, and they see something like this, which sounds so promising, how can someone like that go about understanding what is valuable and what's maybe not so valuable? So, you know, this is a real life experience that's going on right now. No one's doing randomized control trials. Um, there isn't that time for that rigor, and we're in an emergency setting. It takes years to get those randomized control trials set up. And randomized control trials are the highest level of evidence because you're taking two groups of people who are essentially uh, identical in their population and their diagnoses, and then you're giving one of them a treatment and you're giving the other one um, a placebo or not giving them the treatment, and you're comparing the results. That happens over time. Um, that's not something that can come out when you have an emergency setting like a pandemic. So I would be very hesitant when somebody says these are promising results. And when they say these are promising results, that is expert opinion um, or experiential opinion. So that means that you have a physician who decides to try this and decides to try it on their patient population. And they said that they have found good results. That's not to be dismissed, um, but you want to say, what setting is that physician in? What kind of patients are they treating? In which, in how many patients, when you say it's successful, was it statistically like significantly successful? Was it, those are big key words that you want to look for. Meaning, was it successful enough in enough patients that you could say that it wasn't just some patients were going to survive COVID and some patients weren't, and it happens to be that you gave out, you know, a certain medication and so the the ones that were going to survive anyway survived and the ones that didn't didn't did it happen consistently enough and were the populations um 
with a population, something that you can compare and translate into your own population. So you say that this is, you know, a hospital in France. Well, does the coronavirus, the way that it presented there, present similarly enough in our environment? And I don't even think you could say that across the entire United States because different states are experiencing this virus differently and are finding that it's affecting their population differently. And it depends on their ages and comorbidities. Um, so you're really trying to say, is it translatable into my um, current situation? And that's why I personally look to the infectious disease department in my area, um, because the infectious disease department in my area are obviously in, uh, you know, are in constant contact with the CDC, but they're also looking at it for my area. They're saying we live in an intercity, very highly congested city. Um, and what does that look like for our city? And they're translating those recommendations into what could work for our city. And that's gonna be different than, um, than a city in New York and a city in California and a city in Florida. Everyone's gonna have different considerations to say, I can only look at different experience um, based off of what could be translated into my area. I can give them an example that I think is very relatable. So John Gottman is a psychologist who works on relationships and has spent his entire life researching marriage and you know divorce and what leads to them and he's done a lot of rigorous research into it um, and has a lot of publications that he's made so if i am having trouble in my marriage i have a few choices um i can look to john gottman's work where he has spent his whole life looking at, at ways of helping people overcome very similar obstacles to what i may be facing and has been shown to be successful in a significant way. Um, and I could try to use those tools and incorporate it. Or I can look at my best friend who got married a month before me, and I could try to see what she does for her marriage that might be successful. So when I ask my best friend, it could be that she has very valuable advice, and it could be that she has found that certain tools have helped her marriage, but I don't know that those tools will translate into my marriage in the same way because it's only been tested in one in one relationship and it's subjective in how she feels that it's benefited her marriage. Versus if I look to John Gottman, I can say, well, this is something that he's seen over a period of time through many, many, many relationships and very controlled environments and very real environments. And these are the recommendations and tools he has seen successful. Um, so let me try those tools to try to help my relationship uh, because I believe that, that that will be more beneficial. And if it doesn't work, that doesn't mean all of his tools are no good. That just means that um, it could be that my situation was slightly different or maybe I need a different approach. And I'm sure he would love for me to contact him and let him know. Um, but that's the difference between looking at, uh, that's looking for an expert opinion. That's looking for somebody who's immersed herself um, their entire career or as much of their career as they've had in trying to find the answers and then is giving that advice based off of what they have seen um, versus looking at, you know, physicians who might have really seen good results. But again, that's in a very specific area, um, seeing their patient population, and it's subjective to what they feel are good results. So then, you know, in a climate like we're experiencing right now, um, when you find someone who maybe experienced good results with their population, what is the usefulness of that kind of study for other people? Like, can other people say, okay, so it worked for him, let me try it for me? Or are they just 
better off relying on their local government or Department of Health to make those kind of recommendations? Or, you know, in a climate like now where we don't have that much information, is it sort of okay to just say, well, let's try it, let's give it a shot and see what happens? That's a decision that the person has to make with their medical provider. Um, They should choose a medical provider that is in touch with the CDC guidelines and um, the infectious disease department recommendations. And then that's something, a decision that they would want to make with their expert who knows them and knows their situation and hopefully has a broader understanding of what uh, scientific knowledge is out there for their specific uh, situation. Um, That's not something that you would want to make a decision on your own. You would never take a medication without consulting a provider for it. It's very individualized, and what works for some people may not work for others, and that's why it's really a decision that you would make with your provider directly. Got it. So, you know, it sounds like I've heard it said that that medicine is part science and part art, and it sounds like this is where the art part comes in, where you have to sort of take the science and then mold it to what's going to work for you or your population or your, you know, demographic that you're treating um, it's not just strict numbers and strict data, but then you use the art when you apply it. Would that be fair to say? Definitely. So, you know, with this whole COVID pandemic and, you know, we touched on the fact that there's not a lot of research out there. Um, personally, I don't know if you've seen this, but I've seen a lot of, I don't know if I want to say articles or maybe social media posts, maybe YouTube videos, few different platforms that I've noticed where there's some information out there um, that touches on the conspiracy theory side of things. A lot of um, people that are, are very doubtful of how the pandemic is being handled on a broader scale. A lot of people um, are questioning what's going on uh, in hospitals, um, in the CDC, in different government organizations where top government officials or people who've been appointed by the government based on their expert opinion are making certain recommendations that some might not agree with. Um, And personally, I think this has a lot to do with the vacuum phenomenon because we just don't have a lot of real data like you pointed out for many reasons because it takes years and years and years to accumulate this data. And right now this thing has only been around for like three months. So... um, this is given way to a lot of chit chat, you know, online about different people who are having problems, you know, accepting different recommendations and the reasons for them. So I wanted to kind of ask you, how do we know whose recommendations are valuable if we should trust them? I think the bigger organizations get, the more people tend to think that there's room for corruption when it comes to organizations like the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the World Health Organization. And then there's sort of, you know, there's mistrust bubbling under the surface. Oh, we don't want to trust that group because they're all about the money. They get bought off. They get bought off by the pharmaceutical companies. They get bought off by lobby groups. You know, politicians get bought off. There's a lot of room for corruption when people have positions of power. So what's your response when when people raise those kind of issues um, that are rooted in like this sort of mistrust of of government agencies and those kind of things? I'm not going to get into the philosophical idea of who can you trust, who should you not trust. Some people choose to live their lives not trusting anyone. Some people choose to live their lives trusting everyone. That's a different discussion. What we know about the CDC and about um, 
again, infectious disease departments, is that these are people who have dedicated their life to studying this, to studying pandemics, to studying viruses. Yes, they might have um, some motives like, you know, they're part of a government, there's political motives, there's financial motives. But overall, they're basing their experience on um, years and years and years of experience. Um, Going back to that John Gottman um, example, it's kind of like disregarding everything that he says because we think he's just trying to sell his book. It could be, but it's been successful for a lot of different people. And it's been successful over the years. And that's why we keep going back to them. Um, I think that videos that take their recommendations and try to make it more easily understandable are great. I've shared some myself because I really find them very helpful to have it translated either for either for my children or for myself in in terms that I can really understand. But videos or articles that are coming to make their own recommendations, you have to question what is their motive for making that video? Um, are they anti-government? So do they get a kickback from this? It's part of the ethical morale that every time anyone presents on any scientific literature, they do a disclosure. They have to report any financial uh, involvements that might affect their opinions on the matter or um, any part of any project they might be part of that would also uh, have an effect on what they have to say. This is part of every scientific article. This is part of every lecture. Um, and it's considered a standard in the scientific world um, to make sure to be upfront. It's okay to have something that you need to disclose, but be upfront about it. So if I'm reading an article that's talking about a drug and it was funded by a pharmaceutical company that sells that drug, they need to write that in their article and they have to be very clear and upfront. And then when I see that, I can then interpret it and decide, okay, let me see how rigorously this was done. Let me see if their conclusions make sense. It makes me more wary, but it doesn't mean that I have to throw out the entire article. Um, it's important to know where things come from. When I do read an article and there aren't any limitations stated and there aren't any disclosures stated, um, that worries me. You should be very transparent in what limitations you find when you're making these recommendations and what limitations um, you might have or what biases you might have as someone who is making these recommendations. And I do think that a lot of people that have come out in the CDC, when they publish, they do understand these limitations. They do say this is something that's ever changing. Um, when you do speak to the infectious disease experts, they're very quick to say this is a day-to-day -day change. This could be something that tomorrow we're going to see something totally different. Um, but based off of our past experience, which is notable and they are upfront about it, um, this is what we're currently recommending. And we're currently recommending it because we feel that it is the safest for our patient population. And it's the safest for the population that we know and that we're recommending it to. So while I can't give you a concrete reason why you should trust people and or not trust people, I think it's very valuable to realize that people should be upfront with where their biases are um, held, what the limitations of their recommendations are. Um, and then you really want to look towards that expert opinion. People have really dedicated their lives to studying this and have found their tools to be successful rather than mistrusting them so that you end up not knowing um, really what to do, which uh, isn't very helpful either. I can give an example. So in my personal practice, um, I, I work with children who are newly diagnosed with cancer. 
um, a lot of times I get asked the question, you know, why am I putting chemotherapy in my child's body? What about all these herbal remedies that I hear about children being cured through eating organic vegetables or foods? Um, sometimes they have other alternative medicine cures that they would like to try. And they, I've had many discussions with families about why should they trust chemotherapy, especially with all the poison that they're really putting in their child's body. And my answer to them is always um, a lot of sympathy, but that these alternative therapies are not FDA approved. So they're not looked at rigorously to make sure that they're safe for your child. Home remedies uh, differ between different shops. And so while they could be effective, and they probably were effective somewhat um, in previous years, now that we have the scientific data to back up chemotherapy and to say that this is actually a viable treatment that we've seen success for patients with the same diagnosis and the very similar situation as your child, um, we recommend going with the chemotherapy. And I also say to look at the big picture. You know, the big picture is really to keep your child alive. So while there are a lot of side effects that come with the chemotherapy, there also is the ultimate goal of trying to keep your child alive and giving them the best life possible that they can have uh, despite their diagnosis. So I think that there's a similarity that we can pull from that in this our current situation, which is that a lot of the recommendations, they're frustrating. They come with a lot of side effects. Um, they're not easy to listen to. However, trusting people that have a lot of experience and have seen what's worked in the past and are taking them, translating to the situation that they feel are, is very similar to the situation that you're currently in, although they have a lot of those side effects, you want to keep in mind the big picture. And the big picture is we want to keep people as safe as possible. Um, and that's really everybody's goal. Everybody's goal is saying, what can we do to keep people um, safe and healthy and try to impact the least amount of people. And so um, despite those side effects, that's why I personally do listen to the CDC and do listen to my local infectious disease departments um, because that's the message that I get is that there's a lot of side effects to what they recommend. It's not easy being home with children. It's not easy staying home and being away from family and friends. Um, but the ultimate goal is really to try to keep me safe to the best way that they know. And it could be that there's other ways out there that could keep me safe, but those haven't been proven in the past and they haven't been looked at as rigorously. Um, and therefore, we can't tell you whether they're actually successful or not. I do want to clarify that when you go to a healthcare system, ideally everything is based off of evidence. But that does not mean that you cannot advocate for yourself. And that when you do ask questions, they should be presenting you with the evidence that they're basing their decisions on. Uh, so don't be scared to advocate for yourself and to ask those questions and to bring it up with your providers. That's a that's an important part of you know being proactive in your healthcare as well. Interesting point. So basically, patients should be empowered to ask for the reason why they're making the recommendations that they're making. Absolutely. And, you know, and I myself personally have taken care of patients and I've printed out articles for them. Um, you know, when they ask a question and they want to look at the literature, I, I always offer it to them. I say, I'm happy now. You know, I, I probably don't have time to do a comprehensive search if I'm, 
you know, at the bedside, but I'm happy to print off a few articles and I'll have you look at them yourselves. Um, I'm going to be using databases that are approved, are peer-reviewed, um, do possess high levels of scientific re- literature that you might not find when you just Google what you're looking for. And, you know, like I said, my favorite part of nursing is being an advocate for my patient. Um, and I love to empower them to advocate for themselves as well. That's really amazing. And I think that, you know, for sure, them having the information themselves and them seeing the information and, and understanding really where these recommendations are coming from, it it really helps them, I'm sure, feel more comfortable with the decisions that they're making because no one wants to be in that kind of situation. I'm sure it's it's gut-wrenching for parents to have to decide you know, on potentially dangerous treatments to give their kids, but it must be very empowering and offer them a level of comfort when they know that the decisions they're making are based on, you know, the best data possible out there and they can see that for themselves. So that's really wonderful that you do that. Absolutely. So Tamima, you've given us a ton of information um, as to how you review research and, you know, what makes research valuable and how you put it into practice. And also, you know, I know your your practice is kind of different than what we're experiencing right now, but it's it's kind of the same model that we use in all different situations in medicine. But what makes our situation right now so unique is that we're really lacking in so much of the research of um, that we usually go with a really rigorous research. And now we're sort of relying more on expert opinion, which is um, the best we have to go on right now. But um, I wanted to ask you what you make of all of this from a Hushkafic standpoint. And I'll tell you what I mean, because I've I've mentioned this in the past uh, in previous episodes, but I've heard this thought said by Rabbi Akiva Tatz, which is that, as as from Jews, we we are supposed to take scientific recommendations seriously. We are supposed to trust doctors, but uh, ultimately, of course, we trust Hashem. But he he has said in some of his lectures that I've heard, he speaks a lot to medical personnel that although we balance our emuna with science, um, it's actually incumbent upon all Jews to do their hishdadlis when it comes to their health. And uh, the way Hishtadlis is defined by certain gedolim is doing what's considered normal for your day and age. So how would you implement that sort of recommendation into practice? What, what is normal for today's day and age in this kind of environment that we're experiencing? Um, so I, I just actually recently spoke to a friend who I think really gave me a, a great outlook. Um, she said to me, you know, my husband asked me, are you nervous about the summer? Because all of the kids are going to be home. I don't, we don't know if we're going to be able to send them to camps. Um, we're waiting for the recommendations on if we're going to ease social distancing, if how strict we have to be with it. People had plans to go and visit family that they might not be able to now do. So she said, you know, my husband looked at me and he said, are you nervous about the summer? And she said, I'm not nervous. I'm curious. I'm curious. So I said, I don't know, Hashem, how are you going to do this? How are you going to handle the summer if we do do social distancing and we're not allowed to visit our family? Go for it. Because I certainly don't have the power myself to go through the summer with my children all home with um, not knowing what we're going to do and being worried about the current health situation. But I know that you have a plan and that's why you put me in the situation. So lead the way. Uh, and that statement really stuck with me. 
I'm not nervous. I'm curious. I'm curious to see what Hashem is going to do and where Hashem is going to lead us and what Hashem wants us to learn from this. Um, And those are my thoughts, really, facing now the summer and moving forward with COVID-19. So I think that's a really, really healthy perspective. And, you know, I've, I've kind of come to that conclusion in a different way myself, because I have been, you know, in contact with a lot of healthcare providers through this, because here in New York, the pandemic is so all consuming. Um, And for so many of us that work here, it's become a really big deal. Um, And so we've sort of created a network of providers at different hospitals to reach out to families and check in on patients and things like that. So there's, there's been a lot of chit chat and, you know, also among family members and stuff and everyone's got an opinion and everyone's reading the news and everyone wants to say, we should do this. No, we should do that. Now this person from this political party believes this and the opposing political party believes that and everything has become so politicized and everyone's got their own opinion. And it got to the point for me where it was just kind of like, I don't have control over any of this. All I have control over is, you know, what I do in my home and at work. And I can just do the best I can do in those situations. But I'm not a politician. I don't have any power like that. So I may have an opinion on the matter. I may think we should do more social distancing or less social distancing or give this medication or try that drug or do this or that. But at the end of the day, my opinion on those things don't really matter that much. And I sort of came to this realization after just this inundation of opinions and chatter and all that. And it made me realize that, you know, I don't really have anyone to rely on but Hashem at the end of the day, you know. It's not my opinion or, or anyone else's that's really gonna gonna affect our situation that much. So I think it was kind of an eye-opening moment for me. And I know that, like, you know, I've spoken to family and they, we were talking originally about possibly getting together for a Shavuist. You know, would we be, would that be an acceptable thing to do if everybody's social distancing? And our first reaction, and I think what's an important reaction is, we need to ask a Shaila. And the reason why we need to ask a Shaila is because this kind of question, um, it involves Pekuach Nefesh, it involves close understanding of what the CDC is saying, but then translating into, as a Jewish person, what hishtadlis do we need to do based off of the recommendations of the experts? Um, and that really should be something that you consult a rub for. Right. And I think that's actually a really, really important point because halacha says to consult with an expert medical opinion whenever it comes to anything um that's medical that involves a halachic shiloh when somebody you know has a sick family member in the hospital you know and they need to know what next steps to take or maybe steps that they shouldn't take on a regular day um a savvy rav will consult with the doctor on the case um typically halachic decisions when it comes to medical matters are made in conjunction with the opinion of the medical professional. Um, and so, you know, even though today the medical opinion isn't on par with what we usually use when it comes to medical opinions in terms of all the data and research, um, it's it's what we have. You know, it's what Hashem has given us. Hashem hasn't given us any more than, than that. And so that's the foundation of what Hashem wants us to work with in order to then make halachic decisions. Right. No, that's true. So I think that's an important perspective to keep in mind that although we may have an opinion that something maybe should be done differently, 
uh, or we don't really like where the social distancing parameters are at right now. People can't go to shoals. People can't get together with friends. Right now, these are the expert recommendations that we have. And so this is what we have to work with. And I think that's important to keep in mind. So Tamima, I just really wanted to thank you for giving us your time. Um, your experience is so valuable and it's so insightful to sort of see that side of things because, you know, most people, they go to the doctor, they go to the hospital, a recommendation is made, they follow the recommendation, but it, it's a lot to, to know about uh, in terms of everything that goes into those recommendations. It's not just done willy-nilly, um, you know, there's so much data, there's so much research um, and, you know, hopefully we'll see an end to this pandemic really soon and hopefully we'll have some better guidance really soon. But um, I really, really appreciate your insight on the topic. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on here. Thank you for sharing your experience and truly thank you for what you do for your patients and, you know, the general community. It's really, really valuable and appreciated. Thank you. Thanks have so much for having me.